You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Okay, so um, I remember when I attended YWAM DTS. YWAM DTS, that's where these guys went to for the Pittsburgh dimensions, uh, domestic missions. YWAM DTS. And I went, it was back in Kona, Hawaii, where our sister Jennifer is at right now. And this was back in 2004. I was able to sit under a class taught by Darlene Cunningham. Uh, she wasn't the teacher, but she actually was a guest speaker for one of the, uh, the evenings. And she's the wife of Lauren Cunningham, who is a guy. Uh, Lauren Cunningham. He's the founder of YWAM. Now, the wonderful thing about Darlene Cunningham is that she is a wonderfully godly woman of, of faith who loves the Lord and loves the people of the Lord. And she would talk about how it all began. So we sat, you know, 50 of us all sitting before her. And, and so as she was talking in jest, she said, you know, this is really my supporting role as, as a woman, as a wife. And she, so she talked about how her husband, Lauren, was the dreamer. He was the dreamer, right? And if he didn't have her, he'd still be dreaming, right? He'd still be dreaming. In other words, God spoke to Lauren and directed him to create this worldwide, magnificent worldwide missions organization that's really in almost every country in the world, I believe. But she said it was her, she, who put it all on paper. She was the practical one, the realist, if you will. Who are you? Are you the dreamer? Or are you the practical one, right? Now, we all probably know that people who are the big picture folks, maybe it's you, I don't know. But these big picture people, they're the ones with the vision. They're the ones who dare to dream of something that no one else has ever dreamt of. And, and the way they live is often in big kind of sweeping strokes. So it's kind of inspiring to be around them. It's, you know, when you're around them, when you talk to them, when you engage with them, it's, it's almost impressive and so it's really cool just to socialize with these people. But if someone like Darlene didn't follow them around and take care of the details, they'd probably, you know, for instance, run out of oil in their car. Or their, or their checking account would probably, you know, go into the red line. So really, you got to think, are you a big picture person? Are you the dreamer? Or are you the practical one? And the other side is the practical people, right? These people are equally awesome and just as important. These people are known for their attention to detail. They're faithful with what they're asked to do. Like, for instance, if you were to tell them to, or give them a job and then come back 10 years later, they'd still be doing their job faithfully and to the best of their ability. No organization could survive without such faithful people. And so that leads us to our next question. Then what kind of person is God then? Is he someone who just governs the universe but leaves a detail to us? Or does he lovingly work in the details of people's lives? Does he pay attention to the small things that are going on in your life? So what we have here in this passage, and I'm actually speaking on from the entire passage, entire chapter 41, is that we have two stories intertwined. We have the big story involving the history of Egypt, and then we have a personal story involving the life of Joseph. One commentator said this, this is a history lesson with 
personal implications and a personal story with implications for the history, for history. So here's the first point. I'm going to get right into it, okay? First point is this. God controls nations to save his people and to do his work. God controls nations to save his people and to do his work. Now, we believe in separation of church and state, and that's good because the church shouldn't be running the government and the government shouldn't be running the church. But what's happened is that today, separation of church and state has come to mean separation of God and state. Meaning, this has also become, by the way, the mindset for a lot of contemporary Christians these days, that God has nothing to do with our national life. That he has to keep his hands off. Don't touch, God. Leave, you know, get your laws and your commandments and your whatever your, your um, the biblical standards away from our national kind of thoughts. But here in Genesis chapter 41, we learn that God, he is sovereign and that he controls other nations to serve his purpose. God is very much involved. In fact, in Job chapter 12, verse 23, it says he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. Then in Psalm 22, 28, it says, it says, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. Then in Daniel 4, 25, it says, the most high is sovereign over the kingdom of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then finally in Acts 17, 26, it says, from one he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You know what happened the other day in Charlottesville, Virginia? It's a mess down there. You all probably know this. Some of you probably um, were there recently. People have died. Many were injured. There's just so much division, so much hatred. And yet, despite all the chaos, we as believers must believe that God is working somehow. That he's doing something. We don't get it, though. We don't understand it, but we have to believe that God is working in such turmoil. Why? Because of this one word, sovereign. God is sovereign, and he is in control of all the nations and all the things that happen within these nations. He is in control. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is God? Do you? In this chapter, we see that God, he's ordering even the events of history in this Egypt nation, in this pagan nation. First is this, God, he reveals his will. He actually reveals his will to a, not to a prophet, not to a, you know, a, a God-fearing man or king. No, he, reveal, he reveals his will to a pagan king. He reveals his will to the Pharaoh. So Pharaoh, he has two dreams. There was a cattle standing in the Nile River to escape the Egyptian heat. Then there was the desert wind that was blowing from the Sahara. This wind would soon just wither all the vegetation. But Pharaoh's interpreters, or the dream advisors like I mentioned last week, they couldn't decipher any of these dreams because these dreams weren't some dreams that came from typical human subconsciousness. No, these dreams were different. They were really different. It wasn't, like I said before, remember they had a kind of a, a legend of what this, what this symbol means in reality or whatever. It's not like he said, I dreamed of white bread. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that one. You know that one. You know what happens if you dream of white bread, right? It means what? You'll be prosperous. So it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't anything they've experienced before. These dream advisors were just dumbfounded. What are you talking about? What could this possibly mean? They've, nothing like this has ever been written down before. They haven't ever studied anything like this before. They don't understand the symbolism there. 
But we find here in verse 25 and 28 that God revealed to Pharaoh what he was about to do. Get that? God is speaking to Pharaoh and making him, Pharaoh, submit to God. Do you understand this? That it does not matter how powerful or how prosperous of a king or leader or nation you are. It doesn't matter how vast your empire is. It doesn't matter even if you don't worship God. You see, everyone and anyone is still subject to God's sovereign control. No one can escape that. God is your God whether you like it or not. God is your God whether you choose to admit that or not. Then God, he provided interpretation and also counsel so that Pharaoh would understand and know God's will. Because in the midst of this whole dream crisis, when no one was able to interpret the dream, the cupbearer, ah, suddenly remembered Joseph. The cupbearer struck with guilt because um, he recalls how Joseph interpreted his dream back in prison. And then when he was released, and Joseph said, Wumber, please, can you, like, remember me and, like, you know, do me a solid because I helped you out and all this stuff? He's released from prison, and guess what? He forgets completely about Joseph. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph, this unknown Hebrew slave who was apparently a dream expert. But in verse 16, Joseph makes it clear. He says, Pharaoh, it's not about me. It's God. God is dealing with you. He says, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's not me. Don't give me credit. I'm not the expert. I'm not the dream guru. I'm not the one who understands all this mystical stuff. Uh-uh. You see, God is dealing with you right now. So Joseph delivered God's message accompanied with wise counsel concerning what Pharaoh ought to do about that dream. So this mighty Egyptian king who destroys any, any, and any, anyone who might defy him, who believes that he himself is a God worthy of worship, is at the end controlled by God's sovereignty, and his heart is turned to serve God's purposes. You see, nothing and no one is greater than the God that you and I worship. Amen? Nothing is greater. No one is better. And so just like the dream said, God sent seven years of prosperity, seven years of plenty to this land. And so God not only just communicated information to Pharaoh, but he also controlled. God also controlled the rain and the sun to bring seven consecutive years of just awesome abundance upon this pagan land. God can certainly bless other nations that do not know him because God has a will and he controls all nations for the purposes of his will. But just as God brought seven years of plenty, God also brought famine. Right on schedule, too. It was like a, a flipped switch. The rainfall began to stop. Then the flooding of the Nile that was necessary to irrigate the surrounding land, that ceased, too. Then the wind blew in from the desert. And this amazing life cycle in Egypt where everything was just growing and, and prospering, that came to a painful halt. You know, one commentary actually mentioned uh, and recorded a famine that's happened before in Egypt. Twice actually was recorded that it was so severe that these famines, when they hit Egypt, okay, it was so severe that the inhabitants resorted to cannibalism. That's how bad it got. It wasn't just, man, we need, we, we need, I wish I could eat a little bit more. They resorted to cannibalism. That's what famine brought. 
For God, he preserved Egypt in the famine. So while Egypt could have been destroyed, completely annihilated and decimated by this famine, instead, because of God's control, because God is large and in charge, Egypt was given this amazing golden opportunity to rise to greatness because where all the surrounding nations were starving, all the surrounding nations were desperate, Egypt had food and lots of it. It says in verse 54, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Then in verse 56 and 57, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So the question we might be asking is, why? Why does God intervene? What purpose is there by God's sovereign intervention? And the reason why we ask these questions is because we're all predisposed to these modern concerns. Maybe we think God intervened because, you know what? Humanity has a right to live and to flourish. Or maybe God intervened because there should be some sort of baseline of wealth and prosperity for all people from all walks of life. Maybe because Egypt was one of the richest nations of the time that it made sense that there was a leveling or redistribution of the wealth to benefit those who were in need. Maybe the famine was brought to bring judgment upon someone in particular or some other nations that were defying God. But here's the reason why God intervened. Because there's only one reason why God did what he did. And it's one word. Covenant. Covenant. God made a promise. God made a promise to his people. And when he makes that promise, he keeps it. He made a promise to the descendants of Abraham. God had promised him the land of Canaan. But he also told Abraham that they would spend 400 years in Egypt growing their people that was somewhat big, but not all too big. But those 400 years, that small group of people will grow into a mighty nation. And now judging from Judah's compromises, God's people were in danger of being lost and assimilated by this nation that God said stay away from. And what was that nation? It was the nation of the pagans of Canaanite, of Canaan. He says, stay away from them, but what were the people doing? What were God's people doing? They were assimilating. They were intermarrying. And so God, he goes to great lengths to move them to Egypt. He sends Joseph on ahead to prepare the way. Then he sends a famine until they have no food. And finally, he preserves them by Joseph bringing them, his people, into Egypt, just as God said years before. In fact, that's exactly what Joseph said later on in chapter 45. He says this, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me here, get this, before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for many survivors. I was sent here for you. This is what God does for his people. And by the way, before we think that this is some sort of isolated event only for the descendants of Abraham. Remember, those of us who are in Christ are spiritual descendants too. God will discipline us the way he later raised up the nation of Babylon to discipline his people. Then God will restore us back like the way he brought Babylon down by allowing the Medes and the Persians to 
destroy Babylon for the purposes of restoring us all back to him. So brothers and sisters, this is what I say. This is what the Bible is saying. If you are suffering in any way, it is not random. It is not arbitrary. It's never just a coincidence because we must be willing, according to Scripture, to be humble enough to ask God, what are you trying to teach me? Because you're trying to do something right now. Joseph, could you imagine all the questions that he asked? But God was trying to do something in him. He's trying to do something in you as well. God doesn't let his children off easy. You see, God, as a good father, he chastens and he restores us back to him. If you are his people and if, nation, if this nation is his, then God in his sovereign control will do what he has to do to bring us back to him. But more specifically, while we pray for those who are spouting off evil and racism and violence, we must pray even more for the faithful like those around you to stand firm in the gospel love of Christ. Really pray for those around you. For those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who are in Charlottesville, the pastors and preachers and the churches down there, the deacons and elders and the members of the churches down there, that God would allow them to stand firm upon the gospel of love. Amen? We have to remind ourselves that while those who perform such acts of anger and hatred, that they may, they may seem like our enemies, that we too are enemies of God, and that by his grace we are saved. God will move the na nations to save his people as he did with Egypt. But here's the thing, folks. God also wants to move his people to save the nations too. God wants to move his people to save the communities. God wants to use his people to save the cities and the states and our nations. This is his will for us. And as the world continues to spiral out of control, we need to have confidence, have faith in God's promise that nothing has escaped his notice. Nothing. God is not distant to the pain and suffering of his creation. God is sovereignly in charge of all things, but this by no means means that his purposes are easy to understand. It doesn't mean that just because, you know, um, God is a part of this and he's working in us, that his will is easy to do. I mean, disciples, they had no clue how that this horrible, terrible act of injustice could have happened to Jesus. How could God use a crucified Christ to bring salvation to a world of sinners? God may be doing something crazy in your life, and you're thinking, how could you possibly use this? How could you possibly use this for your glory? How can you possibly use this to better me, to strengthen me, to equip this church? God is doing something. And we may not understand it, just as the disciples didn't understand it, but God is doing something. So we might not understand God completely. We might not understand why things happen the way they are. But we know from this passage that God is not about being absent or inactive. So Shining Star EM, have hope. Have hope and continue to lift up God in your life with unwavering confidence because God is doing something great. He's doing something powerful. He's doing something purpose-driven for the sake of you, for the sake of this church, and ultimately for the sake of his glory. You believe that? My last point is this. God, he exalts the humble. He exalts the humble. Now, how many of you guys like Under Armour? Whatever. I love it because it's stretchy. It's so great to wear all the time. But one thing I really like about this brand is that you'll notice if you go to their stores or even their website, that they don't have big superstars plastered around. They don't. 
And the reason is, is because underdog, unlike Nike or Adidas or other, other brands out there, unlike those two, underdog, they're all about rooting for the underdog. Did I just say underdog twice? <laughs> Under Armour <laughs> roots for the underdog. They could have easily signed the LeBrons, the Tom Brady's, the Messies of the sports world, but they instead chose to go for the lesser-known folks. They were the ones, they go for the ones who were never really given the chance to be the big stars or anything like that. They, were, they went after the ones who were typically dismissed for being too small or unathletic or too weak, a non-superstar. That's why Under Armour fell in love with Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry. Now, right now you're thinking, he's a superstar. Yeah, they loved him way before that. They loved him during his Davidson college career. He was just a little pipsqueak running around with a ball. They loved him when everyone thought he'd be too weak and too small to make any difference in the professional league. They loved him even when everyone thought that his defense was weak and that his perimeter shooting would make no impact. Why do you drive in? Why do you keep shooting threes? Why do you keep going farther and farther and farther back shooting threes? Come a little bit closer, but look at him now. The world is always looking for the big, the powerful, the loud, the proud, the headstrong, the ones who will trample those who, who, are, who dare defy. But God, thank God, is not like that. God, he roots for the underdog. God, he honors those who are humble and meek. Turn to your neighbor and say, be humble and meek. In God's kingdom, there is a reversal of honor. In God's kingdom. Whereas in the world, the kings and leaders are exalted. In God's kingdom, God exalts the servant. God exalts the servant. And that's exactly what happened with Joseph. Remember, Joseph was falsely accused and humiliated. He was thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. Now in a sudden reversal, he's exalted into a position of prominence in Pharaoh's kingdom. I love what this one commentator put. I want to read it if you give me a second. He said, his father rebuked him. Now the greatest monarch welcomes him. His brothers despised him. Now the proudest priesthood of the world opens its ranks to receive him as the wisest force in Egyptian politics and life. The hands that were hard with toils of a slave are now adorned with a signet ring. The feet are no longer bound by steel chains, but now a chain of gold is linked around his neck. The coat of many colors was torn from him by violence and defiled by blood. His other garment left in the hands of the adulteress, but all those are now exchanged for clothing of fine linen from the royal wardrobe. He was once trampled upon as trash and off-scouring of all things, but now all Egypt is commanded to bow down before him as he rides in the second chariot. He is the prime minister of Egypt, second only to the king. You see, the preservation of Joseph's humility is what allowed him to be entrusted with such power. He was humble, and God, he lifts and he exalts the humble. In verse 16, when Joseph was attributed with the interpretation of the dream, he immediately corrects Pharaoh's theology. He's like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not like one of your typical dream advisors. I'm not like one of your little spiritual gurus. No, no, no. Trust me. It's not me. It's all about God. God will give you the answer because God is trying to deal with you today. We also see his humility from the total absence of vengeance. Can you imagine how you might have felt knowing that this cupbearer forgot all about you after all that you've done for him? He forgot about you and let you rot in jail for two years. Can you imagine what it was like for Potiphar? 
and his lying wife to now bow down when Joseph passed by, what would you do if you were in his place of power? But there's no record of him doing anything to them. Even in his dealing with his brothers, all we see is grace and forgiveness. If my brother, or if I had a bunch of brothers who did that to me, I would. But what do you do? He just extended grace and forgiveness. But not only that, finally we see when Joseph's sons were born. You see, Joseph was given a wife, and her dad was actually a priest of the sun god Ra. Did Joseph turn away from the Lord as Solomon and so many others did? No, because when Joseph's sons were born, he gives them Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. He names one son Manasseh, which means forget. This name is a name that praises God for delivering Joseph from the past pain and troubles that he experienced. Then he names his other son Ephraim, which means fruitful, praising God for the new blessings that he lavished on him, even in this foreign land that once used to be his prison. He's saying, God, I trust you. And this is how I'm going to symbolize and, and, and honor you by naming my children. This was my past, but this is now my future. And the thing is, folks, hearing this has to lead us to worship in Christ. I hope it does. I hope you're getting what I'm trying to say. Joseph here is a picture of Christ. Jesus was humiliated for our salvation, who is now exalted at the Father's right hand. Get this. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his Jewish people. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was betrayed by his friend for the price of a slave. Joseph was imprisoned with two criminals, one who was restored and one who was not. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one who repented and one who did not. Joseph, though rejected by his own people, rose to rule a Gentile nation. Jesus Christ, though rejected by his own people, now rules all nations and calls all people to come to himself. Joseph, who had been so hated, so despised and rejected, is now exalted and everywhere he went commanded every knee to bow down throughout his land. Jesus, who was also once so hated and so despised and so rejected, is now at the Father's side in glory and before him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Do you see that? Just as the famine hit the land, you see the only hope for food, for life, was what verse 55 said, go to Joseph and what he says to you, do. And so also in this broken and savage, sinful world that you and I live for, the only hope for life is to go to Jesus, the bread of life, do what he says, eat and live. Drink and you'll thirst no more. Come to him and he will carry you. Folks, there is no other hope but in Jesus. And it's only in humble submission to him that Jesus will remove the burden of our guilt that he will forgive you. But not only forgive you, he will restore you back to him. He will restore your weary soul so that he will exalt you to a new life in fellowship with God the Father. You see, only in Christ will he give his spirit to us so that we would be empowered and enabled to live it out each and every day of our lives. So does God care about big or small things? The answer is both. 
is both, of course. He's moving nations. He's moving the hearts of kings and leaders, but he also wants to move the hearts of his people for the nations. But not only that, God works in the smallness of our lives too because today he hears your cries. He does. He hears our sufferings. And today, in your humbleness, in your humility, he desires to lift you up. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing reminder from our domestic Pittsburgh missionaries who I gone come back that God, you, you really are working. And sometimes we are tempted to feel complacent and comfortable with the idea that, you know, God, you're very routine and this is just kind of what we expect. But no, Lord, you're, you're, you're shaking lives and you're changing lives. And we see that outside these walls, but Lord, we also want that to happen here within these walls. Change our lives. Shake us. Remove the impurities of our lives that have distracted and become these brazen idols that have, took, that have taken over your spot for far too long. No, Lord, our heart belongs to you. Our lives belong to you. And perhaps right now, perhaps right now we think that we're helpless, that there's so much going on, so much just chaos and mess. God, you are asking us to be the light of truth right now in this most dark time. You are asking us when there are people who are now just very transparently saying, I side with this and I side with that. God, that you would empower us to stand firm, not upon culture, not upon political rights or platforms, but upon your holy word, your amazing gospel. That Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and life. You are our salvation. You are the only one who could ever bring any semblance of restoration, of reconciliation, of peace and joy. But Lord, we also thank you that it is through humility, God, that you can work so powerfully within us and through us. Not when we say, God, I got it all by myself, or I can take care of these things myself, or I can empower myself, or my own might, my own strength. No, no, is when we are weak, when, when we are depleted, and we say, God, I can't do it, but you can. I am weak, but you are strong. I am unable, but God, you are powerful. I am foolish, but God, you are wise. I am not persuasive, but God, you will lead and transform. The beautiful thing about sharing the gospel, just as these brothers and sisters did, is that successful evangelism or successful witnessing has nothing to do with a conversion, but has everything to do with your obedience if you share the gospel. Trust that God will take care of the rest. Folks, today... I want to give you a minute or two just to reflect on what you've heard, to pray, but to pray in humility. And I would challenge you to even pray and say, God, what do you want from me? Instead of saying, God, this is what I want from you. But in that challenge, of course, it's a reminder that we have to always go into his word because that's where God and that's how God speaks to us. So let's take a time, pray, and we'll go into our last song.